Today is Thursday, February 1st. The title for our devotional is The People of God. Today, again, we revisit the main point that Peter has been driving at in this section. Remember, he's linking the church to the people of God uh, in the whole section of 1, 3 through 2, 10 here. Uh, he has already said in the smaller section, uh, verse 4 and 5 here, beginning there, that the believers are being built up into a spiritual house. So let's read it again and we'll see how he drives at this theme. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Again, yesterday, uh, I mentioned that one of the main themes in this passage is the contrasting ideas that Peter uses. And one of the big ones is the beginning here at verse 9, where he's just contrasted previously in the previous two verses, those who do not believe. Now here in verse 9, he transitions to those who do believe. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So in case there were any questions left in our minds as to the status of the church in the New Testament as the people of God, Peter answers it here. In verses 9 and 10, he takes four Old Testament designations for the people of God, formerly that had been applied to Israel, and he now applies them to the church. He calls them a chosen race. This is a direct quotation from Isaiah 40, 21 to 22. Uh, this quote is from the time of the exile, which would resonate with his audience, who is also in exile. Uh, the term race here refers to those descended from a particular lineage. In the Old Testament, the people of God were, for the most part, uh, from the line of Abraham. This new, quote, chosen race in the church is no longer based on one's lineage. Instead, it is made up of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. The prerequisite for acceptance into the people of God is no longer along uh, genealogical lines. Instead, it is solely through coming to Jesus, believing in the gospel, as we've seen so far this week. The chosen race of God, then, is multi-ethnic. There is, then, no room for racism in the people of God. Instead, the church should love and cherish diversity. Secondly, he says uh, the church is a royal priesthood. This is a quotation from Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Um, this is from the time of the Exodus, which would have resonated with his audience as they were praying for God's deliverance as well. He has already called all believers a holy priesthood. <laughs> Again, uh, this means all believers can access the presence of God without mediation. We have all been given the Spirit of God so we can all access the presence of of God. This also implies that the church is to mediate between God and the nations. We are to represent Jesus to the world and fulfill the Great Commission, calling the nations to repentance and belief in Christ. Thirdly, he says we are a holy nation. And this is from Deuteronomy 7 6 and Exodus 19 6 as well, uh, which was also the royal priesthood reference. 
The church is to be a people set apart by God, is what this means. They have been chosen by God, made holy through the blood of Christ, and are to live in moral holiness. We are to be the light of the world, a city on a hill. Our lives, our moral behavior, the way we love one another should make God look awesome. Fourth, uh, he says, the church is a people for his own possession. Exodus 19.5 references this in Isaiah 43.20-21. So uh, now he combines the two, both in the Exodus and in the exile. Again, those two scenes would have resonated with the people he's writing to. Uh, This is what God said to the people of Israel when they entered into a covenant relationship with him at Mount Sinai. Uh, In the Isaiah passage, Isaiah prophesies of God doing a new thing after the exile. The church is to be a people for God's own possession then. As we said in week two with the ransom language, we have been ransomed from our former ignorant way of life, sin and darkness and death, to enter into covenant relationship with God. There is no sense then in which Christians are free to be self-determined. No, we are God's prized possession. And in that we find our identity, our purpose, peace, satisfaction, and true self-actualization. This is one of the truths in scripture that you have to trust, that we are made for God to be with God, to know God, and that we find ourselves when we find ourselves in God. It doesn't make sense in our natural minds, but throughout the centuries, Christians have found this to be true. Okay, in verse 10, he quotes from Hosea 1, 9 and 10 and 2, 23. Again, this is applied to the church, that those who have come to Jesus through belief in him, uh, they are the people of God because of the mercy of God. That's the reference of Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This new identity for the church was one of the main reasons that they were being persecuted. Being a part of the family of God, or the temple of God, to use the same analogy as we've been following this week, had serious implications for how Christians related to their society. Christ became their primary allegiance, and that conflicted with their former allegiances. Their identity has been changed. They would abandon their former pagan religions or Judaism. This alone put them at odds with their society, which was not secular as ours is today. Uh, Acts 19 is a great example of how this could put a Christian at odds with the broader community and even the economy. So many people in Ephesus were coming to believe in Jesus that they stopped buying statues of the pagan god Artemis. A man named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, got the town all riled up and started a mob to protest and even kill some of the members of the church because they were ruining his business. Crown ended up dispersing peacefully, but you can see how this caused economic pressure for the Christians. It also would have caused family pressure. In this culture, everyone in the home was required to follow the same religion as the patriarch of the family. To go against him would mean loss of inheritance, as we've already discovered, and being disowned from the family. It also put pressure on them from the government. Caesar claimed to be a god and lord. Their allegiance, however, were to Jesus as god and lord. Christians would be brought before the governors of cities to declare their fealty to Caesar and curse Jesus. When they refused, they would be put in prison or even martyred. This was likely later than Peter's audience, but it was coming in a few years. So, it was a great risk to believe in Jesus in the first century. All this to say, as Christians living in a secular culture, we should feel like elect exiles, as we've already said. If we don't feel this tension of dual citizenship, something's off. As I said in week one of this campaign, more often than not, we are too comfortable in the culture that We fail to live in our new citizenship in the kingdom of God. We fail to recognize Jesus as our preeminent cornerstone, Lord, and easily, we so easily cave to the pressures of our society.